Thank you, Mark, for reading uh, such a long passage for us. Keep your Bibles open if you have them. It'll be helpful to you. Uh, My name is Jesse. I'm the ministry apprentice here at Oasis Church, and uh, it's my privilege to unpack this passage with you this morning. Uh, Before we do that, why don't we just pray once more and ask for God's blessing. Um, Father, we do just come before you now humbly, and we ask that you will speak to us. Uh, Father, we, we ask that it won't just be head knowledge that we gain, but that you will be transforming our hearts, helping us to understand you and know you and love you more fully and wholly. Let us worship you as we study this passage, please. Amen. Each week, I listen to podcasts and sermons on YouTube. I normally speed it up so that I'm listening to it on two times speed. But this week, I noticed that I was listening to a sermon on four times speed. When you, when you do that, you really aren't dwelling on the details. You aren't sipping from a wine glass. It's more like drinking from a fire hose. <laughs> the, the, the picture in my head is, is of... Um, you know how sometimes you see these videos on YouTube where people get a Coke bottle and they put Mentos in and, and then they try and drink it? And it, it? The Coke reacts with the Mentos, creates a Coke explosion. Normally Coke comes out of their nose and out of their mouth. They might taste the Coke, but they, they don't end up drinking a lot of it. I feel like today's passage is a bit like that, especially in comparison to last week's passage. For the first 14 chapters, really, of First Kings, We've been kind of sipping on wine. We've been slowly going through the lives of only three kings, Solomon, Rehoboam, and Jeroboam. In chapters 15 and 16, though, the narrator really speeds up the pace of the story. And in two chapters, he goes through the lives and reigns of eight different kings. He really doesn't dwell too much on the details. And part of the reason for that is that the details are not the main point of this passage. There are helpful things for us to learn, of course, but they aren't the main point. And as we go through the passage, the main point will hopefully become increasingly painfully obvious to us. The author reveals a hidden but consistent problem, and one which doesn't just plague the people in this chapter, but plagues most people, even today, a problem which you might not even be aware of. This is a passage that diagnoses a problem, one which will color the way that you view the world, how you view culture, how you view history, how you view others, and even how you view yourself. If you missed last week, we started a sermon series in the book of First Kings, which we're calling The Life and Times of Elijah. Last year, about this same time in the year, actually, we looked at the first half of First Kings, which is mostly about Solomon. And in this series, over the next seven weeks, we're looking at the second half of the book of First Kings in the Old Testament. Last week, Adam explained for us that after Solomon died, his stupid son, Rehoboam became king, and that God brought about the division of the kingdom into two halves to punish Solomon for his idolatry. 
God gave the northern half, which we normally call Israel, to a man named Jeroboam. And he left the southern half of the kingdom, which we normally call Judah, in the hands of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And both of these guys did not do a good job. Neither of them could accurately be described as a good king. And our passage picks up the stories of both of these kingdoms, starting with Abijah, who became king in the south after Rehoboam, his dad, died. And then halfway through the passage, it freezes the events in the south, rewinds back to Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, who ascended to the throne after his dad, Jeroboam, died. Despite being a big passage, we aren't going to have a very long sermon. We're going to briefly look at Abijah's life, then Asa's life, and then Nadab and Bash's life in the north. And we're going to see the thread that ties this whole passage together. The main point of the passage, if you will. Firstly, Abijah, the son of Rehoboam. The narrator tells us in verse 3 that Abijah committed all the sins of his father before him. His heart was not fully committed to the Lord like his ancestor David had been. And the interesting thing here is that almost the only thing that the narrator tells us about Abijah, um, the narrator tells us that for David's sake, because David had obeyed God wholeheartedly, God blessed Abijah, giving him a son and keeping Jerusalem strong. And the implication here is that God wasn't being merciful to him uh, if, if God, the implication is that if God was not being merciful to him for the sake of his ancestor, David, then the dynasty would have ended. God is showing mercy for the sake of someone else to Abijah, which is actually something that God does over and over and over throughout the scriptures. God is foreshadowing Jesus with his mercy here. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, God shows mercy to us. Abijah benefited from someone else's righteousness. And in the same way, you and I benefit from someone else's righteousness, from Jesus' righteousness. And then the narrator just quickly finishes telling us about Abijah by almost tiredly telling us there was war throughout his reign. That's it. The first king we've met is Abijah, the king whom God was merciful to. And next we meet Abijah's son, Asa, the good but flawed king. The narrator is much more positive about Asa. He tells us in verse 12, Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father or ancestor David had done. And the narrator explains what he means by this by telling us that Asa expelled the male shrine prostitutes from the land. He got rid of the idols from the land. He removed his wicked grandmother, Marka, from her courtly position as queen mother because of her idolatry. He destroyed by burning the idol Asherah that she had created and worshipped. He even donated gold and silver to God by putting it in the temple. This is all great stuff. But the narrator also mentions three things which stand in contrast to all of this stuff and are designed to make us uncomfortable. Firstly, as verse 14 says, although he did not remove the high places, 
Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. These high places were, were places where people would worship idols. And for whatever reason, Asa didn't remove them. That's the first thing that's supposed to make us a bit uncomfortable. Secondly, we get this story of how the king of the northern kingdom of Israel came down to Ramah and began building a fort to blockade Asa and his kingdom. Ramah was close to Jerusalem. There are people in this room today who could run between Ramah and Jerusalem in 20 to 30 minutes. If we compare it to here at Oasis Church, it's roughly the same distance to the Petrie train station or the Brendale Bunnings. This was not a good situation. We read that Asa took all the treasure he had in his own palace, as well as everything that belonged to God in the temple, and he used the money to bribe the king of Damascus to betray and attack his enemy, the northern kingdom of Israel, the blue kingdom uh, there on the map. And the, the, the hope was that the Israelite king called Basha, the king of the blue kingdom, would be forced to abandon his attack on Asa to defend against the king of Damascus in the north, Aram Damascus. Damascus was above Israel. You kind of see there, um, just up to the right. And, uh, and Asa's men would have had to sneakily creep all the way around the kingdom in order to get to the king of Damascus, who could have then just killed them and taken the bribe without doing anything, unless they were super convincing to him. It's real blockbuster stuff. You could write an action-adventure movie here pretty easily. And it worked. By the way, the passage tells us the plan went off without a hitch. There are a couple of hints, even in this story, that are designed to just, just make us uncomfortable. Firstly, Asa didn't ask God for help. In 2 Chronicles chapter 16, it tells us more about this situation. It actually tells us that God sent a prophet to rebuke Asa for taking things into his own hands and relying on a pagan king instead of trusting in the living, all-powerful God who wanted to help him. Another reason is Asa took, or a better word, might be stole God's money from the temple to ask a foreign pagan king to, to betray his ally, to ask a foreign pagan king for help. And that's, that's not quite right either. And then another thing makes it uncomfortable, Asa convinced the foreign king to betray his ally, basically convincing him to lie and sin. And, and, and more, the foreign king, the king of Aram, Damascus, did attack and some of God's people in the north Asa's distant relatives were conquered by this pagan king. And then one more thing, just in this story, it's designed to make us so uncomfortable. After the king of Israel withdrew to defend against the king of Damascus up in the north, Asa conscripted everyone in his kingdom to dismantle the half-completed fort and use the materials to build other forts. And this is designed to remind us of the Egyptian pharaoh who enslaved God's people, or of Rehoboam, who also used forced labor. Verse 22 of our passage, if you've got it in front of you, it tells us that no one was exempt from this forced labor. In essence, Asa's successful plan 
really, it turned out to be a failure in the big scheme of things. God told him in that prophet, through that prophet, that if he'd only relied on God in this situation instead of his own cunning and a pagan king, then God would have massively poured out blessing on him. And there's, there's, there's one more thing that God, that the narrator wants us to know about Asa. And it's, it's, it's really weird. Why include this? He tells us in verse 23 that in his old age, Asa's feet became diseased. What is the point of telling us that? People get old. Stuff goes wrong with them. Why would the narrator, inspired by God himself, want us to know that Asa's feet got diseased when he became old? Well, we find the answer again in 2 Chronicles chapter 16. The text suggests there that God allowed his feet to become diseased so that Asa might turn to God and ask him for help and be reminded of how good God is. But it also tells us in that text that Asa only sought help from human physicians and not from God, and that he eventually died with his feet still diseased. Of course, of of course, it is not wrong to seek help from human physicians when we face serious illness. But if we only do that and we don't ask God to be helping us, maybe even helping us through those physicians, we're probably demonstrating a, a lack of trust in God. We're betraying that we don't trust him the way we should. So what's going on? Asa did all this good stuff and then had all these major failings. How is it that God can sum up his life in the sentence which we find in verse 11? I'll read it again for us. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. What? How? The answer lies in verse 14. I'll read it. I'll read it just one more time for us. Although he did not remove the high places, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. So even though Asa made major mistakes in his life, Asa was fully committed to the Lord all his life. And God wants us to know and to notice in this passage that he is merciful. That even though we do make terrible mistakes, he defines us by our heart towards him. He does not define us by our mistakes. Most of the major characters in the Bible make major mistakes. Adam, if you remember, made major mistake. Noah, major mistake. Abraham, multiple major mistakes. Moses, major mistake. David definitely made a huge mistake. The narrator even pointed it out for us at the start of this passage. David committed adultery with Bathsheba, a married woman. And then he murdered her husband, Uriah, in an unsuccessful attempt to cover it up. All through the Old Testament, God's people make major mistake after major mistake. It's actually one of the most consistent themes that we find in the Old Testament. The Bible takes pains to point out that no one is able to resist sin. No, not one. 
including Asa, including David, including me, and including you. Romans 3, 23 in the New Testament puts it this way, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So even though overall God counted Asa as a righteous man because of his heart towards God, he was still a broken man, still a fallen man. He was not the king that God wanted him to be. God had promised David that one of his descendants would be a great and good and spectacular king who would reign forever. And Solomon, David's son, fell short because as he grew older, Solomon rebelled against God and became like a pharaoh, a cruel tyrant. Rehoboam definitely fell short. Abijah fell short. And the narrator wants us to know that even Asa, even though his reign was overall counted as good, he also fell short. So we've looked at Abijah, the king whom God was merciful to, Asa, the good but flawed king, and now we're very briefly just going to look at Nadab and Baasha, the wicked kings of the north, kind of like the wicked witch of the west, but the wicked kings of the north. Right, he kind of switches gears a bit, freezing events in the southern kingdom of Judah, the death of Asa, and rewinding back to when Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, ascended to the throne in the north. He very super briefly, he tells us about Nadab and Baasha. He tells us Nadab did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Nadab ascended to the throne, reigned for two years before he was murdered by Baasha, who's just a random, unrelated, no claim to the throne, murdered by Baasha, who seizes power. And then Baasha goes ahead and murders everyone related to Nadab, so there could be none to counterclaim the throne. In the previous chapter, we haven't read it, but God prophesied to Jeroboam that this would happen because of his rebellion against God. If you remember last week, uh, Jeroboam invented a cult and created two golden calves for people to worship instead of God. And here in chapter 15, we see God's promise coming true. God warned Jeroboam that his whole family would be killed because of his sin. And it does happen. And God is illustrating exactly the same thing that he illustrated in last week's sermon that Adam preached. God is reliable. He is sovereign. If he says something, it will come to pass. We need to take his promises and his warnings very seriously. And unfortunately, As the final verse of this chapter tells us, Baasha was no better than Jeroboam or his wicked son Nadab and continued the idol worship that Jeroboam had started, continued the rebellion against God, continued the evil. Verse 32 tells us, tiredly again, there was war throughout Baasha's reign as king between himself and Asa, the good king in the south. No peace, not for anyone. So what's the point of this passage as a whole? There are lots of little lessons for us to learn, but what is the big take-home point that God wants us to see here? I believe that there is one. The point is that something is missing. Actually, someone is missing. A perfectly godly, good 
king is missing. Peace is missing. Righteousness is missing. This passage is kind of supposed to be repetitive and tragic. If we were to go on and read chapter 16, we'd find more of the same. There's a cycle that God's people, they just couldn't break out of. Live, sin, die. Live, sin, die. Repeat. Goes round and round and round and round. No one's able to break out of it. In the southern kingdom, they have a wicked king in Abijah and then a good king in Asa. But even Asa doesn't manage to fully break the cycle of live, sin, die. For all of his goodness, Asa is still personally tainted by sin and his leadership was not enough to cause people to fully break with idolatry. He falls short, just like his ancestor David fell short by committing adultery with a married woman and then murdering her husband. In the north, Jeroboam has a chance to fix things, but he's wicked. His son Nadab has a chance to fix things, but he's wicked and continues perpetrating the idolatry of his dad. So God allows a usurper, totally unrelated to Jeroboam, to come to power. And the people might have been hopeful that he would break this cycle, live, sin, die, repeat. But no, he's just the same. Hopeless, bleak, miserable. Sin reigns. The effects of sin take their terrible toll, disease, war, pain, suffering. This is the cycle of humanity, not just the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Live, sin, die, repeat. It's what people have been doing all over the world, in all different cultures, ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God. It's what we do here in Australia. It's what other cultures do. It's what individuals do. Just read the news. You'll see this manifesting itself all over the world in individuals and in whole countries. Maybe you've been stuck in this cycle in your life. It can manifest in different ways. Cycle of addiction, cycle of sexual sin, cycle of pornography, cycle of greed, cycles of selfishness, cycles of anger, cycles of idolatry, cycles of despair and hopelessness about life. Part of the tragedy is that many of us don't even realize that we're caught up in these cycles of soul-destroying, life-draining, peace-stealing sin. Sometimes we're so busy with life. Sometimes we're living on two times speed or four times speed so quickly that we don't even see the bigger picture. This passage reminds us to slow down and see the bigger picture, to see the cycles of sin to look for a way out, to long for an escape. The author of 1 Kings wants us to notice that something is wrong with the world. God wants us to long for a good and perfect king, one who will conquer sin, one who will usher in lasting peace, one whose perfect and good reign will never end. There's something missing and we're supposed to feel it viscerally when we read passages like this or when we read the tragedies on the news. This passage points us to Jesus. He is 
the missing puzzle piece. Jesus saw that no one was able to conquer sin. So he came down to earth and he did it for us. He resisted the temptations of Satan, like we saw in Matthew chapter 4, which we looked at just a month ago. Jesus actually wore a crown, but not a golden crown filled with jewels and gemstones, but a crown of thorns. His enthronement occurred on a cross. And he did that in order to totally defeat sin and Satan. Through his death, he paid the price for sin and made a path for us to exit the cycle of live, sin, die, repeat. If we place our trust in him, proclaiming him as our king. Through Jesus, we have an escape. If we trust in him, following in his footsteps, trusting that through his work on the cross and through his instructions to us, we are saved, then we will be saved. There is an exit if we trust in him and follow in his footsteps. Through Jesus, we can be freed from sin. Through Jesus, we can have peace. And not just peace here and now, but peace forever and ever and ever. Through Jesus, we can rest. Through Jesus, we don't have to be afraid that the era of joy will end. Our King will never betray us or wrong us or lead us down the wrong path. We don't have to be afraid that he will die and someone worse will come to power because Jesus has defeated death. He has already died and he will never die again. He has been resurrected from the dead and is now reigning in glory and power at the right-hand side of God the Father. And we read in the scriptures that he will return in glory and power, accompanied by the heavenly hosts of angels. Today, his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. But when he returns, his kingdom will encompass every aspect of life. He will reign in every sense of the word, over everything and everyone. The scriptures tell us that at his return, every knee, every one, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He will reign in every sense of the world. He will set the world back to rights. He will restore what was lost in the Garden of Eden. The world will again become, like God says, over and over and over and over in Genesis chapter 1, good. It will be perfectly good in every way. The kingdom of Jesus is breaking into the world, and there will come a day when it comes in its totality. So when we look around the world and we see the sin and the brokenness and the pain, or we look at our own life and we see the sin and the brokenness and the pain, remember King Jesus, the truly good King that we all desperately need, who forged a path out of this cycle of live, sin, die, repeat. Remember that Jesus is the missing puzzle piece, the answer. Remember that he has already come and already defeated sin and death. And remember that he will come again to right every wrong that is left when he fully establishes his kingdom. 
here on earth. So church, I invite you now to pray with me. Uh, Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you did not abandon us to the cycle of sin. Thank you that through Jesus, you have forged a path out of this terrible prison. Thank you that through Jesus, we can have peace, that we can have life, that we can have freedom from repetitive, soul-destroying, joy-stealing, peace-crushing sin. Father, we thank you that we can trust you, that you are the truly good king who will never betray us, who will never lead us wrong, who loves us and just pours out mercy on us. We worship you and thank you. Amen.